Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live, multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. An exciting episode coming up. Uh, my friend from Destination Linux, Ryan Dosgeek, joins me. He has done a remarkable job investigating what some of the hardware companies, the tech companies that you use and buy services from, what they're doing uh, to get the parts and the labor needed to manufacture those devices. You're going to be shocked. He joins me. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for being here. So uh, you're going to shit shotgun and, and, and ride through us without the program. Obviously, feel free to jump in. Uh, I think you have the on-air experience to, to handle that. Uh, so our first email comes in. Uh, this is from Jamie. Jamie writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I'm a longtime listener of the show, but have always remained silent, lurking in the shadows. I'm a fairly seasoned Linux admin, and I wanted to ask how you manage multiple, and by multiple, I mean more than 50 SSH connections. I'm using Asprew, and he links to github.com slash Asprew, and have been using it since the times as it was known as PacManager. He also links to PacManager. He says the problem that I'm the, uh, the problem that I'm bound to is its termina- terminal emulation, key bindings and quirks. I have a curious nature and have always wanted to try other terminals like Kitty, Olicraft, and others, but none of them are a viable option since I would lose all of the Aspera features, among other things, I would like to have a central repository for all of my connection data, usernames, passwords, etc. Create SSH connections, clusters, integrate the passwords with KeePass or some other password manager. Aspera offers a ton of features on top of those you can check out the project, but those three are the ones that I can't live without. I'm sure that you deal with this kind of issue at your work. What software do you use? Thanks, and please keep up your incredible work. Well, I'll be on- honest with you, Jamie. I I really have not, um, I've really not gone down this path. Part of the reason for that is I, if you work in a single organization and that single organization has, let's say a few hundred servers, it's a fairly reasonable and logical step to go to whoever it is that you go to and say, Hey, I have to manage 500 some servers, really annoying to try to remember all of those SSH uh, IP addresses and all of that by typing it by hand, we should have some sort of central management system. And then the person or place or thing uh, says, okay, and then you, you put the thing in. The problem that I deal with is, no. first of all, no two environments are ever identical as much as we try to standardize things. And second of all, um, most companies, unless they're a managed client of ours, don't want us to be uh, have any sort of, of of automated access or structured access to their systems. They want us to crawl in there when we need to do something. They don't want us in there when they don't want us to do something. And certain organizations, particularly those that are security-minded, usually will provide a machine that they want you to use when remoting into their systems. We've worked in certain uh, recognizable companies, I guess we'll say, that they don't want you, unless you work for that company proper, you're not allowed in the data center. And so they have a little room that sits outside the data center. and 
you actually aren't allowed to bring your laptop in. They have a computer that they provide for you. If you need internet access, you need to leave that room, go out, research whatever you're going to research, and go back in and work on the data center. So I've not dealt with this um, to the extent that maybe you were thinking I had. However, I will tell you this. I did an interview, uh, not obviously we didn't have scale last year, but the year before last, um, with a gentleman, I can't think of the project name right off the top of my head, but I'll have it for you in the show notes of podcast.asnoahshow.com. And, um, and, and they designed a management system that allows you to authenticate to it first, then it goes out and authenticates to all of the other SSH clients and servers and, and keeps track of all that stuff. Um, and so the there I, I I interviewed him, but there are a number of different projects out there like that that manage those types of systems. And one of the things that they use is, first of all, from a security standpoint, they do tie to things like the YubiKey so that you can uh, you can track individual access. But the other thing that it allows you to do is, let's say you have a server and you want to give access to fifty people to that server. Rather than create an individual account, for all 50 of those users on, let's say, not just that server, but all 50 servers, you would create the users inside of your management system. Then you would add the servers to the management system and the management system will audit and keep track in an audit log of what users are uh, are SSHing in and 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 using uh, the system. You can always go back and look and see what user logged in to that server as root and Obviously, the management system will keep track of that. Additionally, some of them come with, uh, now I should specify, none that are open source come with this, but there are some proprietary alternatives that allow you to even record the session as you're going through. And so if you want to go back and see what that system administrator did, you can go back and actually replay the session and watch what commands he's typing, even the things that he was going to type, and then he backspaced and backed out of it. All of that stuff is recorded and audited and able to 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 be gone through. And so I would, I would invite you to check some of those out. Again, I'll have some links for you in the show notes. Um, if anybody out there has a better solution, let me know. Uh, I know that uh, at you within Altaspeed Technologies, some of our guys actually use PuTTY, even though it's pri primarily thought of as a application that's used on Windows to, to be able to access SSH servers and, and T FTP and those kinds of things. Um, you could It runs on Linux. And indeed, you can save a bunch of configuration details. Um, so that might be an option to look into as well. Our second email comes in from, uh, don't have a name, but that's okay. Uh, he says, hi, Noah. I've been listening to the show for quite a while. Thanks for the steady stream of goodness. I've been working uh, with Cisco gear professionally for a while. And I know that with the proper song and dance, you can forward broadcast packets from one VLAN to another. I'm wondering if this is possible with PFSense. I looked around a bit and found some vague references to it, something called Avahi, uh, although when I turned it on, it didn't seem to work. Maybe it only supports certain software. Do you know if it's possible to forward broadcast traffic with PFSense or OpenSense? There is a secure VLAN that has a service broadcasting a signal on VLAN 10. The server receiving the signal cannot be in VLAN 10 as it's user accessible for obvious reasons. We don't want to punch holes in the VLAN firewall. That would be necessary to move the server into the VLAN, but it's still, uh, it would still be user accessible. How would you solve this problem without buying more gear? Thanks for the show. So I don't know um, that what you're looking to do is possible with, with VLANs and PFSense. VLANs are used to separate groups on the same layer, layer one uh, device. Um, and, and it gets complicated because you can't always assume that the last IP address in a subnet 
is used as a broadcast, nor can you assume that every subnet is a slash 24. In other words, that we have 254 available addresses, 255 being the broadcast address in that particular scenario. But it's not always a given. And so I'm not I'm not sure that you're going to be able to do this in PFSense. Um, there are two kinds of broadcast traffic. There is There are limited broadcasts. That is traffic sent to 255, 255, 255, 255, and directed broadcasts. That's information sent to the subnet with the address of all of the bits set to one. So for example, in a uh, in a 10.0.0.0 network, it'd be 10.0.0.255. But I digress. Uh, limited broadcasts are are generally not routable, and you're not going to be able to forward them, whereas directed broadcasts can be routable in principle, but no router is going to, to forward them by default, because if you don't do it right, you're going to wind up with a broadcast storm. Um, and so you're going to want to pay really close attention. As far as a software solution, if I was going to solve this with software, I'll be clear, I would not. But if I was going to solve it with a software solution, I did come across a small little C program called UDP Proxy, um, and that should do what you want. However, if a client came to me and gave me that scenario, hey, here's a server, here's what we want to do. We want this server to be able to talk to this VLAN uh, so that this particular thing will work when it sees broadcast traffic. We don't want other users to be able to access it. What, the way that I would go about fixing that is I would put two NICs in the server and one NIC I would put on, let's call it VLAN 10. And that's the, uh, that's the user accessible place. And they, they have an IP address and they talk to the server and all that other stuff. Um, the second network card on the server, I would configure with a second IP address on the second VLAN. And then I would run or a second entire separate network if you want. Uh, and, and I would run that into the second VLAN and then have that server talk to those services that way. And this is the way that uh, we'll take servers. And if we're doing like an iSCSI share, uh, you'll have a client that will say, hey, I want a Windows server and I need it for XYZ software. OK, I'm still not going to trust your data on Windows because I don't want you to lose it because that's what you pay me for. So the way we're going to do that, we're going to move that over to ZFS. But wait a second. How do we get ZFS data sets on a Windows share? Well, what we do is you share that out as iSCSI. And then Windows mounts that iSCSI drive, uh, and then Windows sees it as just a block-level device. And then Windows can share it out, and Active Directory, and all the things can happen. But at the end of the day, the user state is really residing on a super secure, actually robust ZFS storage pool uh, on, on, on FreeNAS. Um, and so that, that but and obviously, you would not want a user to have any sort of, uh, of access to those iSCSI shares or, or the ability to... Uh, to, to interfere with that data because it's a block level device. You wouldn't want anybody else to mount it and all those kinds of things because this is before we've hit the security model of Active Directory. Um, and in that case, that's exactly what we do. Put two network cards in. One is a dedicated link back um, to that portion of the network. And the second network card handles all of the user traffic. Again, 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Larry writes in and says, just received a letter from AT&T that they are no longer updating security on the Internet Gateway router. I remember that you previously recommended Ubiquity products. Is there one that you would recommend for a simple Internet connection? We're not into Internet of Things products. So I guess the first thing I would tell you is... Uh, I, I ubiquity is is it's it's a mixed bag for me because on one hand they are very good at letting you own your own infrastructure in fact to a certain degree a large portion of the reason that I originally got into ubiquity products is because I could spin up my own NVR 
on an Ubuntu box, just add the repository, install the software. Now I have a now I have an NVR. Add the repository, install the software. Now I have a controller. Um, that's really nice. Unify also makes what they call the cloud key, which is a controller. It's a little ARM-based computer, really, that is running the Debian and the controller software. Um, so that's cool. You can buy all of that and you can set that up. So the device that you're looking for, if you're going from Unify, is the Unify USG, the Unified Security Gateway. Now, it starts at a hundred and some dollars. And that's a small little puck-like device that you can use, and it will it'll get you online, and it will do a very good job. It's a very robust router, works very very well. And uh, but the 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 trade-off there is you're going to have to have a controller. So you can run the controller on an Ubuntu or a Debian uh, installation. You can run it on a VM. You can run it on your Windows computer, I guess, if you wanted to. Uh, you could purchase a cloud key and run it there, or you could rent a DigitalOcean droplet and and run it on the cloud. Any of those will work, but you're going to have to have a controller. So this is the part that makes me uncomfortable. If your wife, daughter, friend, whatever comes and says, hey, the Internet's down. Oh, the Internet's down. That's unfortunate. Let me log into my router. Wait, the controller's down. I can't log into my router. Uh-oh, now what? And, and, and so the lack of a console port, the lack of the ability to, to, to actually manage the device on the device, I'm fine with controllers for access points. I'm fine with controllers for phones. I'm fine with controllers to a lesser degree with switches. But when you come to the router, the thing that connects you to the internet, the thing that lets you Google to find out what the problem is, the thing that ultimately is the source or the, the solution is probably resides in that box if you really have an all systems down, that's not really the thing I want to be reliant on some piece of software running somewhere. And so I, I get a little concerned, but they are, it is one of the cheapest routers that you can purchase that will get you a really good connection online. Now, another option might be to purchase something like the NetGate 1100. Indeed, this is what I run. Well, I should specify, I have a lot of different networks at my house that I, because I try all of this stuff so that, because I won't put anything in a client location that I haven't personally run. Um, but in my house, my, if you ask me what my router is, it's a NetGate 1100. The reason that I run a NetGate 1100 is because it is the most cost-efficient way to run a full-scale production PFSense installation. We have put NetGate 1100s, which are a $200 router, and we've put them in hotels with 5,000 people, and it handles it like a champ. Uh, was not true for the SG-1000, which was the predecessor to the 1100, but the 1100 is fantastic. It'll handle full gig, no problem. Uh, and it's a $200 device, which means it's only $50 or $70 more than the Ubiquiti USG. And guess what? Everything you need to manage that router built right into the router. Guess what else it has? A console port. So when you screw it up, you can console back in and either reset the password, reset log in to reset the web UI, or if you have to, you can even reflash the operating system on to the SG-1100 through the console port and a USB. Um, it actually includes, it has three uh, network interfaces, which is really nice. Um, whereas the, the, I guess technically the USG has three as well. The three on the PF on the on the SG1100 because of PFSense are substantially more configurable and substantially more useful. Um, with the USG, essentially you can spit out a second VLAN uh, or use it as a second WAN interface. That's pretty much the end of your your configuration abilities on that opt port on on the USG. With the SG1100, essentially. It treats all network interfaces the same. It's just a matter of how you assign them. So I would encourage you to go for a NetGate 1100, but of course the choice is yours. Our last email comes in from Matthias. Matthias writes in and says, hey, you know what? Thanks for the great show. I'm looking forward to every new episode. I'm a longtime Linux user, 17 plus years, and I'm working as a teacher in a secondary school in Germany. I started my Linux journey on Gentoo, and I switched to Ubuntu when I started teaching full time as a teacher. 
I did use different distributions, but I stayed almost always in the Ubuntu Debian family. For a few months now, I'm thinking about leaving Ubuntu behind and switching to Fedora on my ThinkPad T490. This is a big step for me, since I know my way around Ubuntu, and Fedora seems quite different. Last weekend, I installed Fedora 33 on my T490 and very quickly ran into one of the problems. I used GStreamer Pipeline to offer an AirPlay receiver to my iPad using libairplay.so. I run the command get-launch-1.0-tac-tac-gst-plugin-load and then the path to libstringplay.so. In Ubuntu, everything works fine. My iPad connects flawlessly and then I can share the iPad screen with shown on my T490 to my students via big blue button and screen sharing feature. On Fedora, my iPad does not connect to GStreamer Pipeline. It tries, but the connection attempt fails. The connection works as soon as I disable Firewall D. I cannot find any information on how to punch GStreamer Pipeline through Firewall D. Do I have to specify a port for the pipeline to pass through Firewall D? I couldn't find any information on the, what the default port might be. In general, is Ubuntu Debian insecure or careless not to block something like this, or is Firewall D over-restrictive? Um, so I, I would tell you that to start, um, no, n I would not say that either of those two estimations are true. Ubuntu, Ubuntu and Debian are not insecure or careless, and Fedora is not over-restrictive. Essentially, Ubuntu and Debian have the firewall off, and, and, and Fedora has a firewall on. So unsurprisingly, when you try to send traffic uh, through a port, through any network port other than you know, 80 or 443, uh, it, it's going to block incoming requests, which is what you would expect a firewall to do as default behavior. Um, I did some digging for you, and I've, I'll link the, the Apple support article in the show notes that talk about all of the ports used uh, for um, for AirPlay and Apple devices in general, but it, sh it comes down to three that I could find. Uh, the RTSP, which is the real-time streaming protocol port, this is essentially the standard for moving audio across a network. It's what all of audio IP is based off of. It's what the stream that you're listening to now is based off of. Uh, and it's indeed what AirPlay is using. Uh, and so RTSP it happens over port 554. AirPlay direct audio access protocol happens over TCP port 3689. And multicast DNS, MDNS, happens over 5353. So my strong suspicion is if you open 554 TCP UDP, 3689 TCP and 5353 uh, UDP, that will open all of the ports requisite for you to uh, to do your airplay. But if it doesn't, give me a call back and uh, and I'll be sure to help. Again, 1-855-450, no, that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Chaz is with us from New York. Hey, Chaz, welcome to the show. Hey, Noah, long time, no call. How you doing? It has. How are you faring in the in the, in the the land of New York during COVID? Uh, well, I think we're going on a year now since it all kicked off, and yeah. uh, I'm still not sick. Oh, well, that's good. Uh, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been fun, but uh, it's going all right. Um, I don't know if you saw the email that I sent uh, you earlier today, but I am very close to getting uh, the field test team at L3 Harris to switch from Windows to Linux for their field testing opportunities. Okay, and started out as uh, an experiment, and now it's something that I'm actually actively trying to do. Um, and ironically, one of the problems I'm having is with PuTTY. Um, on our Windows computers, what we do is we run TerraTerm, um, and we hook the radios up via USB, but the computer sees it as a serial connection um, uh, and opens COM ports that uh, we use to log the data that's being passed from the radio 
And then we use other programs like iPerf to run tests of the ability to pass data over a network and things of that nature. The problem I'm running is that it seems like if you don't interact with the window every so often, the connection times out and stops moving or at least scrolling off the screen. And the problem is we have it logging the background, saving to a text file. And while it's not actively scrolling data, it's not logging that data either. Hmm. And all the, the looked into so far says, you know, if you go into the connection uh, tab, when you initially set up the connection, there's a, a keep alive thing where it'll send a null packet every okay. uh 10 seconds, 30 seconds, however you specify. But thus far, it seems to have resisted all my attempts to uh, get it to stay alive. And I can't really nail down, you know, a set time or some sort of behavior or anything that would, you know, it's it's completely random as near as I can tell. I'm sure it's not random, but, you know, just from me looking at the terminal output and anything like that, I can't find anything. So I guess the too long didn't read version is, am I on the right track with using the, uh, putty as a terra term replacement is there something else i should look into that maybe solves the problem you ever seen this or anything like that you know i haven't however i have very i mean almost on a monthly basis am required to console into something and then spit output out for hours on end to find out what a problem is and i've done that routinely with success with a program called minicom um i don't know if you've tried minicom or 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 if it would work for you um, but it is a CLI-based application that allows you to access COM ports. Okay. Minicom spelled exactly like it sounds? Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 in every repo uh, for pretty much every distribution. Um, so you should just be able to install it. And the only real configuration that's needed is you have to tell it what serial port you want to use. And, of course... If you're not using a USB adapter, if it's actually if you if you somehow found a unicorn that has a has a, has COM port built into it, uh, then you wouldn't even need to do that. It will just know because it's in the system. If it's a USB one, then you have to go. There's a there's a menu when you when you launch Minicom, uh, and it, and it'll say press uh, you know C to configure Minicom, and then it will ask for the device. Ninety nine percent of the time, if it's a USB serial device you're using, it's slash dev slash capital USB uh, zero. Sorry, uh, I, I apologize. I apologize. Sla sorry, uh, sorry. Slash dev slash tty lowercase then capital USB zero. Yeah, apologies. That's what I was going to say. It's tty acm. You know, either zero or one, depending on how many uh, radios are plugged in, uh, right. and then two, three. Uh, nice, a nice advantage of this is that uh, you know, on Windows it seemingly assigns the COM ports at random, whereas Linux it's always one and zero, yes. which is going to be huge yeah, and in, for uh, in, the rest of my field team because that's the bane of our existence. Right. And in Windows, just in case there's somebody else that comes across this, com port, serial ports are usually two and four and parallel ports are usually one and three. But anyway, I digress. So, gotcha. th but Minicom is the thing that I would suggest uh, taking a look at, Chaz. See if that doesn't allow you to, I can almost guarantee you that will allow you to connect and then stay connected. If that doesn't work for some reason, my next suspicion would be that there is some sort of breakage in the, 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 the well, I guess there wouldn't be because if, it wouldn't work on Windows then. But there, uh, my next suspicion would be that there's a breakage in between the link between the, the, the COM port and, and the other device. Because the reality is, right, that's, the, that's why 
every network device on the face of the planet has a console port is precisely because it doesn't require a two-way communication. That's why you can test a console port by, by shorting two wires together and whatever you type comes back to you in a loop. Uh, it's literally just I'm sending text over a serial cable and then I'm receiving the text on the other side. So there's re there really should be no reason for that to break. And if it, even if it did break, it should instantaneously you know reestablish. But I, I've taken Minicom and I'll open it on my laptop and I'll plug a console in console port into an HP switch, start it up. As soon as I see that it's gotten past the point I was concerned about, I don't close Minicom. I just disconnect the serial cable, go to the next one and, and pick up where I left off um, because you can do that with serial bounce from one to one. Um, and if that doesn't break, I can't imagine trying to have a, have a prolonged amount of monitoring would break. Gotcha. Okay, I'll give that a shot tomorrow And on my uh, Kubuntu installation, which I made look as close to Windows 10 as I possibly could to fool my coworkers. And hopefully uh, it works out. I appreciate it. Give me a call back, whether it does or doesn't. I would like to know. Again, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. I want, I want to get to our interview this week, and then we'll do the news and the picks and all of that, because I don't want to waste any, I don't want to waste any time, and I want to make sure to, to give as much time as I can to Ryan. So, Ryan, uh, welcome back into the program. Uh, so, I guess to set this up, um, essentially, you started to dig into the production practices of a lot of these companies that make uh, computers and more specifically how they're acquiring uh, their parts. So I guess start, let's start with this. What was it that originally led you to look into this? Why did you start to look at the ethics of manufacturing computers and how they're acquiring their parts and labor? You know, I was doing just a simple technology search looking for new articles for the Hardware Addicts podcast and came across a random article in the Washington Post talking about this particular region in China, Xinjiang, that is a lot of companies are basically getting some publicity, very little considering how big of a problem this is related to their supply chains. And so I started wondering, well, which are these companies that are utilizing this kind of slaved or forced labor out there? And as I started digging deeper, and even through after the video I've released and other things, digging deeper and deeper into this issue, it just becomes more troubling the more you look into this. I think I, we all had heard about some issues with say, Apple's supply chain back with Foxconn some years back and things like that. But we assume these things got addressed. But in reality, as I was digging, what I was finding is not only were they not being addressed, but they're growing. According to International Labor Organization, for instance, 24.9 million people are victims of this. And wow. the technology sector is a huge contributor to this problem overall. And that really bothered me because you know how much we talk about it on the show all the time about on Destination Links about the technology and the hardware. And me and you will even go off on separate conversations and talk about hardware. Yeah. I live in, I li love this stuff. I live for it. And I'm always getting new gadgets and things, but never did I really stop and think, gee, is this laptop I just got created by some person who's in some horrible conditions even though I spent twelve hundred or two thousand or three thousand dollars for this component to make this for me, and it's been a very wild and eye-opening ride for me, to say the least. So I, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but Hi-Fi Bitland is a company that 
that uh, essentially manufactures laptops or procures parts and then builds them for Lenovo. And so they, they build these laptops and Lenovo says, hey, COVID hits, we have a pandemic, we have to work from home, we have to have laptops in the hands of, of kids for, for, for school, they need Chromebooks. And so they get, Lenovo gets these orders to build a bunch of these Chromebooks. And the problem is the Hi-Fi Bitland participates in a Chinese government program to provide factories with, quote unquote, cheap labor from persecuted individuals. And so the U.S. Tariff Act prohibited them from importing goods manufactured with forced labor, which means uh, when the when the International Labor Organization came out and said, hey, this company is is making these laptops with forced labor. All of a sudden, they can't be imported into the United States. So this causes, back in November, December, a lot of delays with Lenovo, and Lenovo lost a lot of orders. Quote, nearly 4,000 laptops destined for Etowah County, Alabama. Schools were held up earlier this month. The Etowah County School District, which ordered the laptops in June from Trinity 3 Technologies, a Lenovo distributor, canceled the order earlier this month when it became clear that the delivery would not be resolved until October. And so there is a, a, a website, Import Genius, that allows you to begin to research uh, what is coming into the country from where, from which companies. And so as the as these companies have, as the United States has started to crack down on this, um, people like you have started to pick up on this and say, well, hold on a second. Why are we just canceling that one order? Why is anybody ordering a laptop from Lenovo at all until Lenovo gets their act together and says, hey, you can't force people to make computers as slaves. Um, and you, 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 you've, you've published a video. It's a 30-minute video, absolutely one of the most insightful. Every minute is filled with, with good information, so people should definitely check that out. It's available on YouTube, and, of course, we'll have the link at podcast.asknoahshow.com. One of the primary sources that you use is Know the Chain. Who is Know the Chain, and why are they your go-to place for investigating ethical standards for these companies? Well, they're one of the particular foundations that are looking into how these companies and how this forced labor is really impacting the global supply chain. And the, one of the things that I liked about Know the Chain, although I'll tell you in looking at so many of these different organizations that do this, none of them seem to have a full approach on how they're rating these companies or how they're determining that one company is more ethical than the other. The reality is, when you look deeper into this, there isn't a single company that's actually removed this problem out of their supply chain entirely. There are companies that are doing amazing work in comparison to their counterparts, but nobody's really doing a fantastic job. So I think that makes it difficult for these organizations, number one, to really create a rating, because in some cases they're doing, a lot of these companies have stances or they have you know, policies against slave or forced labor, but that's as far as they go, or they have some teeth with some vendors, but don't with others. So there's this really difficult piece to uncover or unravel when you're investigating this, because so many of these companies, when you go to different sites, will tell you a different story. I like Know the Chain because they have a clear section on their page about their benchmarks, exactly how they benchmark and the rating system that they use and it goes multi-tier. It goes from things as simple as, yes, let's start with a policy. Do you at least have a policy that says you're not going to enforce or not going to have forced labor or slave labor or child labor in your production line? And then it goes further. Are you actually taking action? Are you doing something about this with and, and having oversight committees and representatives and things along those lines? They also each year release a ranking of companies. 
uh, out of 100 of the biggest companies that you can think of. They have a ranking of them on their site. The highest company, though, Noah, is only a 70 out of 100. And the overall average score is 29. So you can basically guess that this is a problem that's so embedded into the industry that it's very difficult to really find a company that's doing things right. There is one company that seems to be doing things right more, but most of the companies here really have a long way to go, even those that are technically scored higher. Is it reasonable to expect companies to be able to control their supply chain, or is the reason that none of, no company has perfected this because it simply isn't possible to know where every little doodad and thingamajig that they put inside of a phone comes from? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I have to believe that if a company is worth $2 trillion, that they have the resources to do everything possible to at least be at the top of that list. Maybe 100 isn't the goal. Maybe the goal is to at least get as close to that 100 as possible. But when you're a $2 trillion company or you're worth billions and billions of dollars, you have the ability to put in controls and oversight committees and the necessary funding to really dictate what happens with these particular um, third-party companies that are producing these items. I, I can't believe that they wouldn't. And in fact, I would have to say that they definitely have the opportunity to at least get where the top company, a 70, is at. Every one of those companies that are worth billions and billions of dollars. Now, is it fair to put that against the company that's running locally in uh, a specific state and say they need to go and find all the supply chain? No. But if these big companies did it that we buy from, then those other companies would be sourcing from the proper areas as well, just as a result of it. So I think they certainly have the resources to do much better, at least, than what they are now. Talk about some of the components that people not, might not think are, are, are unethically produced. So, for example, a lot of people are going to say, well, but Ryan, I buy my, I buy my Dell XPS, and that's, uh, that's made right there in Texas, isn't it? And they shipped it to me, and I've been to, I've been to Texas, I've met Dell, uh, I've been to the company, I Nothing unethical about that, right? Yeah, so a lot of these are actually the components that go into the devices. And this ranges from everything you use, from your phone, which is one of the worst because of the batteries and how those are sourced, especially with child labor when you're dealing with the batteries, specifically all the way through your laptops. Now, the company themselves, Dell, the, some of those components may not be sourced from some of these slaved or forced labor issues. But then other pieces are, such as your CPU, for instance, could be something, the battery that's used in that laptop. It could be the camera, for instance, that's utilized there. A lot of this is all based on rare earth minerals and different things like that that they're using to kit child labor, for instance, to mine, to get these parts. And they can trace this stuff back because these news organizations and the few companies that are doing any investigation are able to trace this into their supply chain. So the company certainly can as well and stop it. And a lot of them have stances. In fact, when, when Tim Cook was in front of Congress recently and they were asking him about this, he said, well, you know, if you would share those files with me so I would know which ones are using it, we'll fire them immediately. But you don't, as a $2 trillion company, really, you don't know that this is happening underneath or you it. Can't especially hire a company somebody to look into what's happening and do something about it. You know, and, and so they, they kind of push it back on the Congress member to basically give them the information for them to make a decision on it. And, and it's just very frustrating to see that companies, especially ones that have a lot of trumpeting, trumpeting for being socially aware, for 
really being forces of good in, in the world. And this type of stuff is going on behind the scenes and with companies that you spend a premium on their devices uh, to boot. So it's not like you're getting this really super cheap laptop for 200 bucks that you got from a super sale store that is happens to have this stuff going on in the background. This is the stuff you're paying the most amount of money for. And you have to think about the fact that, you know, some kid may have been in some horrible conditions or adult for that matter to be able to produce this so that I can go surf the internet. That's just not okay. And part of it, and you know, when I'll, I'll, I'll start here and say that I appreciate the fact that to, you know, your entire video is very apolitical because that's not a political issue. It, everybody should understand and accept that we shouldn't force other people to make stuff for us. Like slavery is a bad idea. I think we can all agree on that regardless of what political party we agree or we subscribe to. And, and, and so, where I get to, though, with that is there is constantly a push to get better and better technology and become more and more, quote, clean uh, with lithium and stuff like that. The problem is you have to go to places like Chile or Argentina to mine lithium. So nobody's ever seen a lithium. But most people that are walking around with phones in their pocket, they've never been to a lithium mine. They have no idea what the conditions or what that looks like or the damage, the catastrophic damage that does to the environment. And so a lot of this is so obfuscated from us as as buyers that we don't even think about it. And, and I guess... Has there been any attempted legislation? Has anybody have, have any companies tried to get to a point where they say, "Hey, no more. We're going to pass a law. You can't bring stuff into the U.S. if it's produced with 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 forced labor or slavery. You're just gonna we're just gonna have to pay more for phones or computers or whatever." Has has there been any attempted legislation? And have these companies that that so strongly support uh, trying to get rid of this and have this as written policies like Apple have they supported that legislation? You know, it's interesting. There was laws that were trying to be passed to stop this supply chain issue. And you would think this would go through with no problems at all, except, of course, there's lobbyists out there. And one of the accusations right now being made, and it was in the Washington Post, was that Apple was one of the companies that hired some lobbyists that were going in there trying to take all the teeth out of this law. So it's still being fought, as I understand it today, but you have these companies that come out there and say one thing in front of Congress, like this is just terrible and just tell us where it's at and we'll fix it. And then they are supposedly actually hiring these other firms to go out there and lobby on behalf to get these laws removed off of the books. And this is more of the disgustingness of as you go further and further into this situation, the more horrible it really becomes because you realize that these companies are well aware that this is happening. They do know where these issues are and they don't want it to stop because it affects the bottom line. How, certainly somebody has asked Apple or has approached Apple or the, the other companies. I shouldn't continue to pick on Apple. Nintendo uh, did far worse than Apple did in your, in your video. Um, a lot of other companies, Lenovo was down there, was terrible. Um, Nokia actually did pretty well, but when, when, when this information comes out is it, when people go to these companies and say, Hey, Apple, you said that you were doing this. Then we, you said, show us where they are and we'll fire them. We showed you where they were. And then you hired lobbyists. And what is their answer? How, how do they get away with this? How do they, how do they remove themselves from being held responsible for this? I think it's really good marketing on a lot of these companies part. They come out and they grandstand on issues out there that are maybe more popular 
uh, being covered in the news and people look at this company and go, my gosh, they, you know, obviously when I buy this product, I'm buying a premium product, I'm overpaying for it. And they tell me that when I buy this, I'm doing great for the environment and I'm helping this issue over here, but nobody's talking about to me an issue that supersedes everything else that we've talked about with supply chains out there, which is we're using slaves to make our products in, in the tech world products that are insanely expensive. So I think these companies get away with it. I think a lot of times it's the consumers themselves that create the situation that allows these companies to get away with this type of behavior. Even when you look at a company like Apple, and they're not the only one, as you mentioned here, there's a lot of other companies out there, but I think Apple's interesting because of the fact of how they present themselves or market themselves. When you look at the right to repair, that alone, the the work that they've done to be anti-right to repair is just a major issue. Yet you'll go into the forums and you'll see people say things like, well, when you buy a Ferrari, you don't worry about how much the tires are going to cost. So you don't worry about ever having to replace a battery in an Apple. Like, what? But a Ferrari, you can actually take the wheels off of was my response. But in any case, my point is that, they, you know, these companies get away with it because I think that they have a very powerful marketing budget that overrides any of the noise out there. And I have no idea why the major news organizations and other things are not blowing this up. They should be, but we're just not seeing it. I think part of it might just be that it doesn't happen here in the U.S. And so to the extent that we can say, hey, uh, we reached out to Apple. They said they have a policy against it. They say they have a guy that looks into it, but they can't control the supply chain from top to bottom. Happens over in China. What are we to do? They accept that as an answer. And I think that's really deplorable. Now, I have to be honest with you. If all you had done is come out with a video and said, hey, this is happening and it's really bad, I might talk about it, but it's really not that interesting because there's not anything that I can do. There's not anything that we can do, but that's not the case. It turns out there is something that we can do because it turns out there are PC manufacturers actively working to eliminate this problem. Talk about some of the better companies that you've come across. It's absolutely amazing, and it was really uh, finally for me able to see some good news out of this because you know I, I love technology i want to go out there and buy new technology every year and experience some of the new things so when i was looking at the companies that were doing the best and i went across and all of my research by the way if you go to dosgeekcommunity.com you can look at literally every link that i've been through every time i get find a new news article or something interesting i post it there so you can go through and look at all of that but hp consistently ranked at the top of every single site I would go to. As someone, a company that has really taken a firm stance against this, has put proper controls in place, has not just made statements, but taken action on it, and they are consistently ranked in the top. Another company, which is not as surprising, but I'm still very happy to see it, is Intel. Intel does a lot of their manufacturing here in the United States, and it's so that's not very surprising as to why they would be a company that would be ranked very, very high when it comes to being ethical in their supply chain. And then when it comes to phones, you start getting even less and less options available. But two companies that seem to show up quite often as being very ethical companies was Nokia and Fairphone. So those are two options out there that, that really impressed me when you compare, especially to the scores of other companies, HP being a 70, and then as you mentioned, companies like NVIDIA being a 31, Hitachi being a 27, Nintendo being, I think, a 13. Um, out there, out of these rankings. So they really are kind of in a league in their own of at least really taking this type of uh, situation seriously as possible. So that makes me want to instantly go out and buy a bunch of HP stuff. Now, I'll be honest with you. 
I have not been super floored with the quality of HP products. Additionally, I've not strongly recommended HP products in the past, partly because every time I have an, it seems like every time I have an experience with an HP, uh, HP computer, I always find like it, it has all of the appeal of a really good laptop, but then it always falls short in some major way or in multiple ways uh, often. And so I've always kind of held back. You have found, I guess, the unicorn. It is one of the best HP laptops that you've ever owned. And now you kind of made me want one. So tell me, what specific laptop can I buy that, and here's my, my list of requirements, in order, didn't force anyone to make it for me, particularly in bad conditions, preferably not by kids, and then on top of that works flawlessly with Linux and it's a good laptop. It makes me happy just that knowing you've already adopted that just after our quick conversation. But yes, yeah, so me. I went on I went on a hunting spree because I've had the same experience as you. Frankly, HP is not a company for laptops that I've specifically gone out there and told people to go buy HP products. A lot of that is because they're they have a wide spectrum of items and the quality control across that spectrum hasn't been great. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm willing to sometimes fork out thousands of dollars for certain laptops um, to try them out, do videos on them, tell people what's good or bad about various hardware. So I'm going to go and hunt out HP's top of the line and see if I can find this golden egg that I've been looking for. And I found it, the HP Dragonfly to me is just, uh, it's very difficult in the PC world. I talk about this in, in a lot of the other podcasts that I do about the terrible screen quality that we come to accept in the PC world uh, as, as a general rule in which Apple has dominated with things like the Retina screen for a decade now. Uh, the terrible trackpads, the terrible keyboards, the speakers that are horrible that shoot into your lap instead of being top firing, the cheap plastic frames that bend when you press into them, the, the list goes on. But the Dragonfly is the complete opposite. In fact, it destroys anything Apple has ever produced from a quality standpoint. And I don't say that lightly. And those that watch my channel know that when I go through this stuff, I give you the honest opinion. If Apple's better. I'm just going to tell you it's better. And I get a lot of crap for that, but I'm going to do it anyways because it's just what it is. And this Dragonfly magnesium aluminum frame, you actually have ports, including the Thunderbolt port, which makes it pretty unique. You get a 4K screen that you can use with this. And it is beautiful screen. It is full touch screen, which you're not going to get on any Apple product. And in addition to this, you have speakers that are top firing. You have one of the best keyboards. It supersedes and is above the magic keyboard and a fantastic trackpad and a pen. So you can draw on it. You can fold it into a tablet. You can do all kinds of great things with it. It's just absolutely top to bottom blown me away beautiful hardware inside and get this no i know this is going to blow your mind you can actually replace things like the battery and the hard drive i mean oh my gosh so it has a room is now do you have to take a thing uh, you have to take the back plate off to get to the battery or is it hot yes you okay. do have to take the yeah okay that's I, I know i miss the old days too where you could click the tabs and yeah pop it well, you're, out, you're but, on yeah. an airplane the battery dies so you take that out and put a new one in that was nice but but here but here's the, the, the one of the things i asked you when you're first telling me about this is i was like yeah that's great but everything's probably soldered on which is bad from a privacy standpoint and a maintainability standpoint because i don't know about you if an ssd is soldered on to my motherboard i don't really want that laptop leaving my possession because the, the hard drive therefore leaves my possession um and so it's nice to know that a lot of these components are swappable now the million dollar question how does it work with linux 
it works fantastic with Linux. It runs Fedora out of the box. And in fact, even the touchscreen and screen rotation work right out of the box. And you can grab your pen and start drawing in Krita in it right out of the box as well. And the 4K looks absolutely gorgeous in Fedora. And the, the you said the touchscreen works. And the only issue that you ran into was an issue with the audio amplifier for the Bang & Olufsen system. Talk about that a little bit. Not that it's a big deal, but... So this Bang & Olufsen is a really high-quality speaker that HP puts in many of their higher-end laptop lines, including the X360 Spectre, which is also a very beautiful laptop that has an OLED screen. The problem that I found is that there are no drivers written from what I believe to be in my research, the amplifier that is controls the speakers with this particular set, with this particular brand of speakers. So you still get sound, you still get loud sound. In fact, it sounds as good as any other PC laptop that you hear out there. However, when I'm doing videos, I'm trying to compare against the very best of the best or the best speakers that I've heard in the laptop. Unfortunately, that tends to often be in the Apple lineup. And when I first did that test, you know, there was just so much more depth in the MacBook than there was the speakers. And I thought that's really surprising, you know, because they're they're taking a name brand speaker and putting it in here and they look like they're huge speakers. And so, you know, went into Windows and of course they were firing with that amplifier and it was a completely different sound. So this is something HP needs to overcome, hopefully, and get more Linux support out there like Dell has, like Lenovo has out of the box. And I think at that point, you would have basically a laptop that nobody else could touch. And when you 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 compared this side by side with a with a with a 2020 MacBook, and you said it's not even a comparison. And this is the first laptop that you've come across that you've been able to say, "Hey, this is truly a better machine than what Apple could offer." That's interesting to me because a lot of people have tried to hit that mark, right? Librem has tried to hit that mark. Dell with their XPS line has tried to hit that mark, and. The, uh, as you said, a lot of those manufacturers have come really, really close. None of them have hit it quite on the head. How much is this laptop that is built without slave labor? It's quite expensive. This is not a cheap laptop. I think the lower end configuration on this is somewhere around the $1,800 mark, and it goes on up to $3,600 for this particular one. Although I will tell you, if you get the Spectre X360 line, a lot less expensive also a fantastic laptop. I would say there are some things that are not as good um, than the Apple counterparts, but if that's more of your price range is the sub or right at the $1,000 mark, that's the way to go. If you just want the best laptop I've ever personally held in my hands and you know how many I've owned, then I would say, you know, save up your money and grab one of these. In, in, in 15 days or 17 days or whenever it becomes outdated to you, I'll, uh, I'll happily buy that off of you at a secondhand <laughs> price. So I, I get that offer a lot. <laughs> I, I, do, do. I do want to say one more thing about HP. Uh, yes. It was really interesting that Know the Chain said this on their site. It's the only company they specifically mentioned. It said only one company, HP, uh, in a statement, requires direct employment in its supply chains, thereby eliminating the risk of exploitation of migrant <clears throat> workers by employment agencies. So they're the only company, only one company, according to this, out of the 100 companies ranked, is the only one that requires that. And I think that says something too about it. And if we would be willing to pay a little more for that, I know I would be. I know not everybody's in that same position. I think that would make a huge statement because the companies and the governments may not be able to do this themselves. I think we have to talk with our money and draw a line in the sand and just say, it's not okay. We're going to support the companies that do this differently.
And you know what? As other, I, I promise you, I promise you, uh, the marketing people at Apple, the second they get wind that more people are going to buy HP computers because they're able to produce an equivalent or better laptop, even if it's more money, but they don't, they don't resort to these deplorable practices. When, when, when Apple finds out that that's something you care about, I promise you they'll be the next, they'll, they'll be all over it then. And then they'll jump in and say, well, we care too. And here's why, right? His name is Ryan yep. Dosgeek, the website dosgeekcommunity.com. Check out his videos as they drop. If you want to learn more, head over to Destination Linux, Hardware Addicts. They're all hosted by Ryan with others at the Destination Linux, Linux network over at destinationlinux.network. Ryan, you always have an open invitation to join us anytime. Thanks so much for being on the program. We'll get you back soon. It's an honor, man. Thank you. And hey, you know what? Because uh, because because you and I are friends, and I know you won't be offended. I'm going to pull you in for as we kind of wind down the news segment here. Probably only going to get partway into the story, but the EFF has come out with a uh, with a story, and really a plea for people to understand what the FBI is doing in Congress. And essentially, what the FBI is going to Congress and saying is that hey. Uh, we need to get rid of encrypted phones and encryption on phones because it's eliminating our ability to investigate crimes. The problem is that the FBI, at the same time that they're complaining about encryption stopping them from doing their job, they are undermining encryption and breaking into people's phone at a record rate. Las Vegas police alone, uh, up 200 and some percent. Uh, breaking into people's phones and a lot of people think to themselves yeah if you're gonna you know blow up a building or attack a bunch of people then some government agency is going to come after you but that's not the case some of these things are low-level marijuana possession some of these are parole violations um, and they're using people's phones to get incriminating evidence and so like i said we're not going to be able to dig into this real deep but essentially the, the the short version is this you should always have full disk encryption on any device you're going to store private information now the encryption underlying technology itself is very good but the problem is that encryption only protects data when the drive is secured meaning the device isn't running if it's running, in order to access the data, the encryption keys must be loaded into memory. If they're loaded into memory, we can dump the memory and extract the keys. So one of the habits that you and everybody should get into the habit of doing is simply restarting the phone any time that it's not actively in your possession or you feel, feel that it may not be actively in your possession. And this applies to both Android and iOS. Both will disable the fingerprint reader, which in and of itself is trivial to defeat and prompt for the passcode. The additional problem though, and this is where these, this is where police departments are getting into the passcode is usually only four to six characters. And so it's trivial to crack. And so this allows them to bypass the encryption, the encryption entirely. In fact, in 2018, professor, professor Matthew Green estimated that it would take no more than 22 hours for forensic tools to break into some older iPhones with a six digit passcode simply by continually guessing the password. In other words, brute forcing it a four digit passcode, 13 minutes. It will fail in 13 minutes. And as recently as September 2020, Cellbrite, which is a company that makes forensic tools for extracting data off of phones, in fact, they're able to duplicate the entire phone and then break into it, boasted in their marketing materials that they can break into the latest generation of iPhone 11 and 11 Pro running the latest version of iOS. So even if you have an up-to-date phone running the latest operating system with all of the latest updates, it's still not a sure-fired way. So I guess, uh, Ryan, in, in just 30 seconds or less, can you tell me what are your, do you have any personal practices? Does it bother you to store personal information on the phone? Or are you still at that stage where you say to yourself, you know what, if they get all my information, they get all my information, I don't really have anything to hide. 
Well, you know, absolutely. I do not believe in the secondary one. I, I don't want people getting my information or using it against me. Cellbrite makes a lot of claims, by the way. I just want to put that out there of their encryption and how they break. Nobody really knows because it's completely proprietary. One of the mm. biggest lies ever told to people was that we need a back door so that we can get this information off a terrorist phone. It's a big news story about a year ago. Mm -hmm. The reality is we all knew that if you have physical access to the phone that they could get into there eventually. But generally what they're utilizing is they're breaking into things like the out iCloud servers or other storage servers that are hosted out on clouds to get in that information on the phone. So I usually tell people, number one, you should have it so your phone automatically locks and that a biometric lock cannot bypass it. Biometric is very convenient, but you can also have a passcode anytime the power goes off on your phone, meaning it goes to sleep, that you have to have that passcode initially for it to awaken and then it can use biometrics. So it's very easy to hit your power supply. And then secondly, just make sure you stay away from cloud services. Ryan, thanks so much, as always, for joining me. Again, you have an open invitation on the program anytime. His name is Ryan Dosgeek. Thanks for joining me. Uh, the music in my ears means we're out of time. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com.